When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All of Alexander Siddig's performances resonate with mystery and grace. It's as if he's both known and unknown at the same time. His besotted fans talk about his eyes, which seem to see inside one's core being. I happen to agree with that assessment. But most likely it's due to his DNA. What a life he's had. Growing up in different countries with a British mother and a Sudanese father, gives his acting a patina of perspective, range, assurance. Whatever it is, it works to his advantage on screen. He's a quiet but powerful actor. I finished watching season one of Shantaram on Apple TV after we recorded our session. Sid is really terrific in it. Catch it if you can, and please enjoy the episode. Hello. 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 Hi. Hey. Oh, there you are. There you are. Hello. <laughs> so let's just make sure we're ready for the start. The Josiah is the tech. So are we ready, Josiah? Does it all sound good? Yep. Should be all set. You're Super. Happy with the sound on this end because I don't have a fancy mic or anything. Oh. oh, yeah. It sounds great. Sid, you don't need a fancy mic. Your voice is like, <laughs> is like <Yes>. velvet. <laughs> Thank you. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I really oh, am. In good shape. I've um, landed. I've just got rid of Django yesterday <laughs> and his girlfriend. Um, it was all quite hectic because they had to change their flights because there was all these weather warnings. I don't know if you've heard. There's a oh, massive... I have. Of course I have. Are you a good shoveler? Uh, I've got an electric shoveler. So <laughs> I'm in good shape there. Now you're in Western Mass, correct? I am right in the in the middle, right in the middle of Massachusetts. It's called Western Mass for some reason. Well, I have a relative who lives in Cummington, so oh, yeah. I I love that area so much. Absolutely, and... Rachel Maddow lives in Cummington. Oh really? Yeah. Oh so my she's a gosh. Cummington gal. So my um former sister-in-law, who I were still super close, she's an amazing potter. Her grandfather was a Quaker, and he became pastor of the Congregational Village Church, which is in the middle of Cummington. He was a conscientious objector in World War One, and in the 40s brought World War II Jewish refugees to Cummington wow. and it's insisted Cummington. that they be able to stay there during the war. And it was really difficult. Yeah. He was, I believe he was the first conscientious objector in the United States, I believe. Wow. Carl, Carl Sangri is his name. Oh, my and, goodness. Um, it was quite something at the time because people were like, no, we don't want a busload of busloads of Jewish people here. But he he made it happen. And wow. many of them wanted to, to leave and go back to Europe after the war, but others stayed. So it's a really interesting town. And her husband, Connie's husband, who is a poet, was also the pastor of the Covington Church, which right. is this Unitarian church. And it's the most open to every possible faith and denomination yeah. church. Yeah. It's really beautiful. It's like that round here. I mean, I took Django, yeah. you know, to various places for lunch and stuff. 
And he was like, the vibe is so cool. Everybody's so kind of eclectic. It's so arty. Yeah, and uh, that's it's very the word. like that. Yeah, it's, it's, we've got six colleges within you know two miles, three miles. Exactly, and everyone's a professor, and uh, you everyone's know. <laughs> professor. We have a judge and a married to a probation officer opposite <laughs> us. We have two lawyers, retired lawyers, behind us. I love what's happening to Great Barrington. It's really becoming such a cool place with the museum and yeah. um, I don't know if you ever get up there but it's really I it, I haven't been up there for since I went to Tanglewood but um, it's it is it's I know it's amazing um, yeah and we we did this and had a great day have you been to Tanglewood oh many times my son played at Tanglewood many times yeah he's oh a violinist God, he's a violinist how fantastic is that yeah. yeah well I walked down there on a Thursday afternoon chilled out with Shana for a few minutes. She showed, she wanted to show me the tangle words, and, uh, which are kind of tangly, if you think about it. Mm -hmm. And it's a beautiful uh, kind of park. Um, and then all these guys with rucksacks started walking towards the stage. And we're like, what the hell's going on here? They're all trooping over there. And then they started tuning up. And then a guy in a cardigan or a you know, sweater fleece came on and, and he was the conductor. And then some dude sat down and he had a kind of duffel coat on. So we we saw, I, they played Brett Maninoff's second piano concerto. Oh, beautiful, my God. <laughs> In rehearsal. Oh. And it was just a mind-blowing experience because it was free. And I'd never seen that before. I never right. watched the whole rehearsal before. It was phenomenal. So that's my memory of Tanglewood. Then I saw Steve Martin and Martin Shaw do their thing. Oh, like yeah. oh how fabulous yeah. how fabulous yeah, yeah it's, it's great. a great area the only thing that is a, a bummer about tanglewood are the mosquitoes are so bad yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> they really they get to but you. They, they're bad where i live they're bad in my garden so i'm just not i'm going for like for like <laughs> now so i heard one of your um you know i love doing research for what i'm going to ask you uh, you and i right. have sort of are strangers in the night in a way we, we rarely have had sit downs or ever to to chat we've, got, we've maybe taught 10 15 minutes but i know it's amazing yeah well <laughs> thank you it is the same back at you what an amazing um life you've had and i've listened to some of your different interviews and podcasts and i do have some questions that i'm very curious about one thing, though, I will say that's, that's more in passing is that I'm a huge gardener myself. And so you said you'd love gardening. I love gardening, always have oh, my entire life. My so God. what is your dream garden? Well, I have to say that my dream garden is probably what you would describe as the English cottage garden. Okay. But then I'm my mother's son, and she was a fantastic gardener. I mean, she, she would go all, all over the world when you could. Um, and pick up stuff and bring mm, it back, mm, you know, mm. start uh, collections. Um, she had a, a plant named after her. She's no. uh, yeah, what a, kind of a, a plant? Dog rose, a, a dog rose, a cornus, cornus gloria burkett is called. And uh, it's a beautiful plant. We have it in our garden uh, in Sussex. And uh, she went on the radio and, uh, you know, did kind of agony aunt for gardeners, answered questions and stuff, which was called Gardener's Question Time in England. And she didn't do it regularly, but she did it. And so she she had an idea of building gardens that felt like like a house. So you would go from one room to the next, and each garden each garden within the garden had a different feel. So you couldn't see more than 30, 40 yards unless there was a view to see. 
Um, and, and that would be a surprise. So she was always about surprises and vistas and secrets and secret garden. Absolutely. Little places to you want to sit with a lover and discuss poetry. <laughs> yes. Oh, that is so charming. That is yeah. the, the gardening that I began when I began to do gardening. And yeah. I had, you know, I had 75 different varieties of roses. I, I, I really got into the oh. old roses and did all these things. But it it just doesn't work in California. It worked when I was oh, no. in Boston, but it, it no. just doesn't work here. And so now so, I have, I never South. thought I would go that way, but I am adoring cactus and gardening with cactus and succulents wow. and all sorts of native plants. And Fantastic. I love it. And I that literally am out there. I'm out there with a pickaxe. You can't just sort of have a little hoe like you can with your <laughs> no, you fox gloves. Rock, it's not fox rock. gloves here. It's like these big things that you have to put in. But yeah. plants are just so wonderful to, Absolutely. to and of course, have around salvia. you. The salvia oh, is a native Californian. And you've that's got right. how many how many varieties of salvia are there? Oh, there? the blue and the butterflies, and they all love it. Hundreds and, and mixed with mm. cactuses and grasses. I, yep. I can't imagine a more beautiful garden. You probably have an absolutely divine garden. Well, it it's something that I love. And I loved ever since I was a little girl, I loved wow. gardening. Yeah. I have a little place in France, in the yeah. south of France. And there I have um I, I have some old roses and my favorite thing is the area where I live is famous throughout the world for irises. They have some of the most extraordinary oh. varieties. Wow. And uh, so you can have irises that are black or gold or wine color. I mean, extraordinary colors that just yeah. are so beautiful. So I have yeah. seen beautiful irises. I mean, I've, we've got a few in my English garden. Um, and they are absolutely divine. They're very, very brief. They're, they're, they're not, they're not long flowering, are they? Well, they are in France. They, it's funny. Oh, fantastic. They are. They will be out for the whole month. Oh my goodness. That's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. And they will. lavender. Are you in Aix? Are you, whereabouts are you in? In, in Languedoc, near Anian. So tell me, you just returned from Hungary. What were you filming there? It's the new series that, um, actually hasn't even been sold yet. Um, Fallen. Fallen, is that right? Yeah. Congratulations it, on it. Yeah, thank you. And uh, it's, it's. I think it's, you know, they call it young adult fair. Um, but I mean, everything seems to be young adult, stranger thing. <laughs> you know, everything is young adult. But I'm an old adult and I quite like young adult stuff. So I'm good with it. And it's ostensibly about, uh, you know, it, there's a novel called Fallen um, or a series. And uh, I think they sold it ton a zillion copies um so a lot of people will know this the show and um so i play like you know a psychiatrist in a institution and that's been quite fun it's been quite oh, cool. nice all these wonderful children not children they're 23 and i'm calling them kids right but right right all of them my own son and i call him a kid but they're <laughs> uh they're, they're, they've been it's been great because young actors are so thirsty and so passionate, you know, they throw themselves into everything, as we both remember. And in a way that the older and, you know, the older you get, you, you, the less passionate you become because you, it's, it's, a, it's a job of work as much as anything else. Right. Um, but they're just raring to go. And, oh, that's uh, so nice. It's kind of fun. Yeah, where where fun. in Hungary did you shoot? We shot in Budapest. That's in, such in, a beautiful city. Oh, it's so gorgeous. 
It's I've been. ridiculous. Yeah. yeah, it's a ridiculous city. It doesn't deserve to be so beautiful, and <laughs> it, and it and it has the most amazing food, um, lovely people. I love um, that section. That's the old section. It's really like you feel like you're in the 1800s, and it's, yeah. it's so beautiful. There's a place in Istanbul that's the same thing. It's some streets, and you really feel like you you've stepped into a time warp like because the buildings are all sort of. Um, I don't know whether it's Art Nouveau or something, but it's just absolutely beautiful. And everyone's yeah. in these huge cafes where there's a downstairs and it's vistas of people and yeah. at their tables. It's beautiful. Really, I beautiful. would love to go to Istanbul. You know, I've been to Turkey. I was in Turkey for three weeks and didn't go to Istanbul. Isn't that Istanbul ridiculous? is the most extraordinary city. I mean, the weight of its history just blows your mind. Topkapi, which is the, the palace of the Sultan, yeah. It's truly the best palace I've ever seen. And I've seen Versailles, I've seen palaces. This one had the <laughs> right proportion. And wow. it was it was something of the earth. It was very different. Yeah. It was so Islamic and so yeah. extraordinary. You yeah. feel the history yeah. in everything you touch. That was the first time I'd ever heard the calling um, in the morning. The and yeah, and it really yeah. was. Um, it profoundly impacted me. It was really so beautiful. It is quite an eerie thing at six o'clock in the morning or whatever time it is. A human voice calling out at dawn, connecting people to each other. I mean, it's profound. It's, right. I love that tradition, even though everyone's on their computers and they're playing video games. <laughs> it's it still is is quite wonderful to. Yeah. That's what I love about um, just Europe in general. I do love the history. In the United States, there are places that uh, I grew up where there were a lot of Indian tribes, Native Americans that we mm. decimated, of course, but the caves and some of their areas were so beautiful. Yeah, I saw some of those out just outside of uh, Denver in Colorado. There was this astonishing cave houses, which were really beautiful, just hewn out of the rock. What is your mother's name? Gloria. Gloria. Yeah. Gloria. Gloria what? Taylor. Gloria Taylor. So she had the house in Sussex where you, when you she came She had to the England. house in Sussex, which both my brother and I inherited. I see. And um, so when she died, I think that was about 2003, they, the, the garden just went. It just overgrew massively. Mm. And we didn't really think about it. And um, it didn't occur to us because it was the last thing on our minds. But after about two years, I looked at it and went, that's just so sad. So I just rolled up my sleeves, sadder than my mom passing away, because that, that, in a way, this was her monument. <laughs> and so I spent the next 10 years putting it back and, uh, you know, built a greenhouse and planted hundreds of plants a year as a factory to fill this huge place because it was a you know it's a five acre area although the gar the cultivable part is only about an acre but that is an enormous amount of work. that's an enormous amount yes it's crazy um and the beds my mother was so ambitious she had you know her, her beds were 20 30 foot deep um so you had to have layer upon layer of plant going all the way back to the back wow uh so it was it was quite something um and we finally got it to you know, back in shape, and I was really. Oh, was that's beautiful! Really, you must really send me. Well. You must send me some photos. I would really, I will. really love I to will. see them. Absolutely. That would be great. And so, so how did your mother and father meet? 
that's a good story. That's a guy called Robert Erskine. His name is seared into my memory. Um, it was an archaeologist slash historian, um, uh, antiquarian, probably a better word for it. And he took my mother to some famous pyramids in northern Sudan and also and Nubia to see lots of the, the ancient stuff there, which used to be part of Egypt, because mm -hmm. those who mm -hmm. don't know, Sudan was part of greater Egypt and eventually got split up. So they took a boat up the Nile. And I think there was a romance, or at least he, he was hoping for a romance. I mean, you don't take a, a girl up the Nile to see these things unless you're hoping for a romance in 1959 or 1962 or whenever it was. So on the way back, he rather he boasted, I will introduce you to the ruling family. They're called Sharif Mahdi family. And um, Sadiq al-Mahdi was prime minister at the time. And he was my father's brother, brother-in-law, actually, technically. Um, but they're all intermarried. We, we don't grow very far from the tree. Really interesting. <laughs> In Sudan, at least yes. historically, no, there's a lot of inter-Nisine marriages. Um, so I, uh, this man came down the jetty to meet them off the boat. And he, uh, if you've ever seen a picture of a, a, a classic Sudanese, is a, just a all white, flowing turban, white turban, white robes down to the floor, um, all made out of the finest linen. And uh, I think my mother just barely managed to get up off the floor. To, wow. And she, she married him. And what's really interesting is, and I'm not superstitious, but I find this just so endearing. My great-grandfather, whom I'm named after, prophesied my mother. She's because no. he said Tahir, my father, would marry a white woman and let it happen. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. That's extraordinary. And was only like five at the time or 12 at the time. Um, he will marry out of the family and she will be white. And so when my mother arrived because of this prophecy, she was given carte blanche to do whatever she wanted. So she was able to break all the taboos. She could eat with my father, which no no wife could eat with her husband. Um, and they could go off to England together and they could do, you know, they, they did things that she lived like a European, except if if the marriage went wrong, which it did, and I, there are reasons for that, possibly my father's fecklessness being primary among them. Um, if the, If the marriage did go wrong, she wouldn't be able to take me home. Because oh, traditionally, um, the man gets the yeah, children. Right, that's right. Now, so, how old was she? Wait, how old? Go back to the when they she first got off that boat. How old was she? She about? must have been twenty-seven. Okay, I would say. Wow. Um, and she'd lived several lives by then. She'd okay. been, you know, a model in Paris at Christian Dior. She'd oh, been. Okay. She'd had her own store in Swing in London, the, the Dior shop in London. She ran that. Um, oh, her, okay. Her so she's very was, sophisticated. Very she was pretty. She was. In, she yeah. was in a pretty cool mix, and, and yeah. she the mix that the friends she had that I I got to know later were all the most astonishing people, um, writers, you know, painters, clothes designers. Um, and um, it very modern by by some standards because it was a very queer community, and uh, so that that was 
and they were actually called queer back then. That's what they called, <laughs> called themselves. And it's back in fashion, that word. <laughs> and um, that that was so I got to know all these young critics because uh, she was a, a publicist at the, theater, at, at the theater and they would hang, I'd hang out with them. And it was an astonishing group of people. Of course, my really. Uh, her brother, Malcolm, was a huge movie star. So Right, right. Another he, I met him, of course, when he did our, our film Generations. And he was he the sweetest. Oh, he was so sweet and lovely and just yeah. funny and, uh, you know, could not. He, he did not do, do the star thing at all. He was just so down to earth and lovely. He was just yeah. a lot like David Bowie was. David Bowie was that way um, when I worked with him on Labyrinth. I um, mean, oh he was just, God. you know, totally he worked on Labyrinth with Bowie, for goodness I sake. mean, just, you know, totally normal. And here they are, yeah. like these big, big stars. It was great. Yeah. So what do you think your father's position in the family? So your your uncle was prime minister twice, actually. Yeah. OK. Yeah. So. Quite right. Well researched. If if well, I'm fascinated with history of, of Africa. Yeah. Actually, one of the things that I I was totally taken with is the area where you're from really that that um there were matrilineal yes um, sort of, the, it was not just a was, patriarchy it was yeah. that you you could if the king died that you could uh, it could be the sister's son who would then become the next you know king well it, interestingly it was i mean it, traditionally islam is is um is is not a monolithic and and you can you know the the prophet's wives were leaders of armies, and you know astonished had and, and businesswomen had astonishing careers of their own. So it only only unfortunately that the the attritional process of time has gnawed into the original. Yeah, I agree. With, I agree. Um, but yes, my my grandmother was the head of the family. Uh, her name was Aisha, and uh, everyone referred to her as Mother Aisha, and um, she called all the shots. Um, and my uncle obviously just did his day job, wow. <laughs> he was prime minister. And then my father was um, not very good at anything, I don't think. I mean, mm. I don't know because I was only very young when I left him. Um, but I just remember hearing about a stream of failed businesses. At one point, he tried to sell military helicopters to someone that went disastrously wrong. Um, but he was extremely sweet. Mm. I mean, and that's probably why he, he didn't do very well. Mm. Mm. Um, he was almost, he was too kind to a fault, uh, too gentle. He was a very weird export in a weird way um, because he'd been educated at Cambridge. So he was extraordinarily um, erudite and was a, an aesthete and wore pinstripe suits when he came to London and took off all his his Arabic clothes and he drank a hell of a lot of whiskey. Mm. <laughs> well, you know, that region has always been difficult environmentally. There's been for centuries on and off droughts. Yeah. And so how do you have a good economy that's going to be there? Yeah, well, I mean, it would be in my vision of Sudan. I haven't been back since 1985 because I've been disgusted with the regimes. Yeah, and I felt that if I went back, I would be somehow used, and and for and and I really might have been. You know, people get Westerners get kidnapped, um, but it's got a Nile running through it, mm. which is an astonishing river, and as and it it it's actually got in a, in a in a funny way three versions of the Nile: the Blue Nile, the White Nile, and the Great Nile. So the Blue and the White Nile actually 
coalesce in, in Khartoum, the capital city. And you can stand on the bridge there and see, look behind you and see the Blue Nile and the White Nile. And the White Nile is actually full of silt and it looks white. And the Blue Nile is clear as crystal and it looks blue. And then you see them converge. The, the confluence is, is the correct word, I think. So uh, that, it's, it's, that is very, very rich mystical. land. It's beautiful. It's yeah. mystical, but it's also very, it's very rich agriculturally. And of course, they discovered oil last century, um, and not, I'm being vague, but it was sort of the 70s or 80s, um, and they didn't know how to get to it. And it's, now it's the cause of all sorts of problems because right. the, sadly the Sudan split a few years ago. So it became the South Sudan and the Sudan, and it should never have split because it's really where the Great Nile, the White Nile and the Blue Nile meet, but also Black Africa and Arabic Africa meet. Mm. So North Africa, which is largely Arabic, and and Black Africa, which is obviously the, the, the Ethiopia on down, um, had a special confluence of their own in Sudan. And because the, of Britain's involvement in the country and their decision to spread Christianity all over the place, yeah, um, the southern, southern Sudanese, Christian and the northern Sudanese and was Islamic. And you may as well just light a match. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Religious intolerance causes unimaginable grief. And it's actually not the beliefs per se, because sometimes they're very similar. But it's the demand that others convert by force. That's what causes the problems. You can believe what you want, but the, the... the loss of humanity and we fight the same battles. And yeah. it's, it's truly uh, amazing. There's a man, Sanguiem, but he fought with Richard Lionhearted and, and he finally came back after the last um, crusade and his family had been all killed because he'd been away yeah. so long. Someone had taken over his estate, but his men oh, were loyal God. to him. And he just said, I want to be a hermit. Everyone just leave me alone. And he yeah. went to this very high up mountain and people wouldn't leave him alone and they built this little town underneath him and it's now considered the second most beautiful village in France but I think of this man exhausted from fighting two religious wars you know he's just wanting to be alone from everybody Uh, and they they still there's this need to fight and this this is our religion I mean I wonder what God is up to in all this (laughs) I know (laughs) Here Seriously. we all are killing each other in, in his Seriously. name. And I just think at some point he may just, I don't know, maybe he's just away from his desk. Yeah. Well, <laughs> or, just... or if only we all as individuals could, as my mother said, just worry about your own soul. You know, yeah. I think just worry about your own. Yeah. Uh, instead of trying to. Uh, change the world to your Everybody will. else is. Well, I was, yeah. you know, I, I, I was born a Muslim and... I didn't know it until I was well into my twenties. But you spoke and Arabic first. Language, I spoke Arabic right? as a youngster, yeah, absolutely, I did, and forgot that language uh, in my rush to assimilate to being one of only two non-white kids in my school. It was pretty terrifying. So you have to try right. hard to fade into the background, and one of I'm the best sure. ways to do that is to speak English perfectly. Um, so I just threw out Arabic, or my mind did, to make room for English in a hurry. Um, it's such a beautiful language. Oh, it is really. a beautiful language. I know. I still have the facility 
to speak it when I oh, you, I you do it in films all the time yeah, yeah. Um, so it's and the diff some difficult things that Westerners can't get their throats around, which I find that I can. So it's which I, so I, obviously I got the right exercise as a youngster, but uh, um, at least in terms of my my mouth and throat. But it's kind of interesting growing up in a Chris as a as a Christian, mm. um, but being an Eastern Muslim and not realizing it because I went I went to a very Christian school, an Anglican school, Protestant, and I bought in completely i went to christian union meetings i gave out stickers with smiley faces saying god loves you on them i sang kumbaya oh, really oh wow okay. a whole nine yards okay. Okay. and it wasn't until i was about 15 that i went wait a <laughs> <laughs> but you know one thing that's sort of good i was raised catholic by my mother my father really did not he was totally agnostic but he pretended to be whatever she needed him to be in that way but I think it it was important for me to actually have that time where I went wait a minute this yeah. is this is not hold on yeah. I'm not buying into this anymore and it it it's a way of finding your own self and your own spirituality because yeah. I actually feel I'm very spiritual but in of many course. ways. The sermons of Jesus gave me lessons in how to be a good human, while the strict dogmas of a church can give you something to rebel against. It, it sort of was a good thing to have. Um, yeah. It was an intellectual awakening in a sense. And um, uh, I'm still trying to wake up further, but <laughs> it's, it's a constant struggle, Sid. <laughs> yeah, aren't we all? I mean, the thing is, it's, um, the teachings of Christ are actually very beautiful. They are. Um, and, and that is what, as a child, I latched onto. You know, the Beatitudes and all the stuff that you would have learned in, in, in Sunday school. And that stuff is absolute Sermon on the Mount. I mean, the, the stuff that Christ said. The parables are amazing. Achingly beautiful, yes. yes. And the way he asked us to treat each other was incredibly true and still is to this day. And, you know, how he you know, implored people to treat the people they didn't like well, to give them everybody a chance, how he took in prostitutes, how he took in, you know, non-believers, apostates, and all the things that he did. The trouble is God. <laughs> the problem is God, not Jesus. No, not Jesus, no. God, God the dad, as always, is the problem. Well, I think the trouble is, the trouble is actually people people uh interpret prophets and beautiful writings and and then people again we're such greedy beings yeah. and, and and who has the power to intercede god yeah. he yeah. did it before he did it 2100 years ago he came on he sent his boy down here squared everybody away and he we need him <laughs> we need him to come back and just sort <laughs> well, it out again i'm not sure i believe there is a god I don't believe there is either. If he is, he's irresponsible. I mean, we live in a quite divided time, but I don't think, I don't trust, I don't trust that every. I don't think everybody is evil. No, not <laughs> at all. Not at all. your political persuasion makes you But I, I think it's the complexity too, because we, we have so much more information that we're processing now. Yeah. Um, you know, I read three newspapers in the morning. That's I, 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 yeah. I, I'm ready to take a nap after that because I, I can't I digest it. <laughs> I'm all over the damn internet. I mean, I know like five different publications I'm trying to get through. That's so funny. Yeah. So, how often do you get to Sussex? 
I don't very often. Um, I'm, we moved to Massachusetts because my wife uh, was brought up in this part of Massachusetts. And um, I found that I, well, she found that uh, I left, I, le I abandoned her for at least three months a year. And that was a very lonely experience for her when she was in England with me because she hadn't didn't have an, uh, an infrastructure. She didn't have friend network, uh, people that she knew and family, et cetera. So we came here so that those moments wouldn't be so horrible. For oh, her. lovely. Yeah. How and, did you meet? Um, How did you both meet? We actually met on the set of a movie uh, I was in called Cairo Time, which was shot back in 2008, seven, something like that. Um, I can't remember the dates, but it, it was shot in Cairo uh, by this phenomenally good, beautiful director called Ruben Nada. You did was, two films with her. I did do two yeah. films with her. Yeah, I've, yeah. they're lovely. Um, you you the, do wonderful the, performances. I mean, particularly beautiful. Cairo time, which was really charming. Um, and, you know, uh, it, so it was, a, uh, yeah, it was like you and I in Cairo. And it was a, a, a non-romance. I mean, mm. it, it didn't didn't work. You know, mm. it wasn't supposed to. It was like strangers on a train. Mm. It's it it it's so grown up. It was just mm. so very adult, which I thought was perfect. And um, the the lawyer on that movie, the the producer who did all the contracts, was was Shana. Uh, so <laughs> I I didn't. I met her only at that time uh, at, uh, for, you know, in passing and dinner and whatnot, but I was never alone. Um, and then years later, something like four or five years later, Ruba mischievously wrote to Shana and said, Sid was talking about you, um, which I wasn't. <laughs> uh, and she wrote to me and said Shana was talking about me, which oh, was hilarious. <laughs> and so she then hooked us up with emails and we slowly got to know each other as you do, you know, the email courtship, which everybody understands very well. Yes. Um, and then that became so you write these long expressive emails and they become the long expressive phone calls that somehow when you're courting, when you're, you know, falling in love, you can be on the telephone for like six hours and not realize the time going by. I know. don't know why that happens because it's certainly not like that now. <laughs> I'm on the phone for two minutes. I'm like, babe, I've got to go. <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, it's my son, you know, he and his uh, fiance, they've been together for so long. Um, they do the. They used to do these FaceTimes when they were students, yeah. because they were on opposite sides of the country, oh. and it really worked. It, it made such a difference that they could see each other's face and and yeah. talk like that. It's I huge. never had that. I was in France, and it, there were no telephones. I didn't have a phone in my building even. <clears throat> wow! And so it was letters or nothing, and you know, people just didn't want to write letters that much. And now they don't write at all. So um, I'm always amazed when I get Christmas cards. I go, oh, that's I so am. nice. I'm, I love it. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> it's so true. I used to um, write letters. Yeah. I know. I, I, it's You should write more. You know, I read one of your posts that you, you did letters or something. I read two I of them. I do letters from time to time to I love time. your writing, Sid. You're oh, really good, you. Sid. No, you are. You should write the story and make up whatever you need to okay. about your, really your nice mother and father because that is a movie. 
from getting off the boat, I see the scene right there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it would be great. But you have a lovely way with words. You really, Thanks. I wish I, I had that gift. Um, what was the first play that you remember? Because your, your mother must have taken you to quite a few plays. What was the first one that really had an impact on you? Oh, Even as a child. The first play I remember and the first play that had an impact on me are two different plays. The first play I remember was at the Royal Court Theatre. It was directed by Lindsay Anderson. Oh. Uh, who was a phenomenal Phenomenal. Oh. Yeah, director. One of the greats. In, in fact, one of the top five British directors. One of them influentially. Influentially. <laughs> <laughs> I like to make up words, too. Um, <laughs> but everyone knows what I mean. And um, he was directing the Royal Court and I was because I was my mum's son and she was down in the office, I would just loll about in the in the auditorium. And whether there was a rehearsal or not, they, they were all fine with this eight-year-old just lolling around on the velvet chairs and watching. And so I would just watch the rehearsals. And it was called The Changing Room, and I can't remember who wrote it. It was about a rugby team. Yep. I was fascinated about the, the, this rugby team were all taking their clothes off and they would just, then they put them on again and then we'd take them off again. So I was riveted. This is like, what the hell's going on here? Um, it didn't occur to, I knew it was a play. I understood that idea, but I didn't really get the repetition thing. But the thing I saw and really blew me away was also at the Royal Court Theatre, but then transferred to the King's Road. And that was the Rocky Horror Show with Tim Curry. Oh, with Tim Curry. With Tim. And I and Tim and my mother were best friends. And no way! Oh my God! How absolutely! Um, and 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 we saw each other for years afterwards. Um, and even when my mother passed, Tim would come to the house in in LA and and have dinner with me. And um, I, he was just electric. He was like, I don't think I've ever seen a performance like it. You know, people talk about. And he's good. Mark Rylance is pretty darn good in Jerusalem. I saw that in, in London. But Tim is in a different sphere yeah. when he's playing in the Rocky Horror Show. I mean, he is setting the world on fire. And he is tearing up the rule book. And he is, you know, the, the first clearly camp, gender fluid hero, superhero, rock star. And everybody loved it. And it's it was a portent of what was to come and how society really were going to be okay yeah. with gay community. How because old were you? All the straight guys flocked to this show. I was got to be nine or something like that. I mean, I can't remember my age, but I must have seen it three or four times. And there was a, a, a scene where there's a mummy, a mummy in it. Um, and I can't remember the name of the, the mummy. It's probably in the movie too. And he sings a song as he's unraveling the mummy the, 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 and all the, rib, the ribbon, you know, the mummy mm -hmm. tape comes off. And I love that moment as a kid. That was like the thing I loved. I think I was probably the only kid in the audience, by the way. I don't think anyone thought it was okay to take their children to see <laughs> the Rocky Horror Show. But I saw it again and again and again. And because my mom was publicist for it. Um, so that was, she was tearing a lot and it was, she had no choice, single mom. It's like, I would always, she would take me everywhere. She would put me under the table at restaurants if I wanted to go to sleep and literally just under the table. And she, as soon as we'd go to someone's house, um, she'd say, I can sit, sleep in your bed. And they'd be like, well, okay. And she'd just put me in their bed what? and she'd get on the bed. 
so it was that's a fabulous adventurous youth i i mean that's really special that's so good it was adventurous. yeah it was uh, a great you know fun. i took um when my son was four i would take him everywhere when i traveled or did anything yeah. and i i remember you're saying that in one of the letters you were talking about um django um asking you about you were having a sort of sex talk with him and he was he was 13 and he finally said, I, I think we don't really need to talk about this, Dad. That's enough of a sex talk, you know? Well, when my son was four, I took him to see Palabalus. I knew um, about the company and they were up right. in Connecticut and I loved movement. I'd been involved myself. And so we go to the show at the Joyce Theater. It was right near my apartment. And the yeah. first half is all of this funny, wonderful creations of movement. And my son, his laugh is cuts through the whole audience and people <laughs> are turning and laughing and they're like, oh, how great to have a four-year-old. No other children, no other children in this, in this theater. Fantastic. And so everyone's going, what a great mom, what a great mom, you know? And then second act happens and the dancers are all nude. Okay. And it's a very sexual, <laughs> water, water, they're sliding down this, you know, it's people's heads are in people's crotches. Oh, and gosh. I could feel the audience hating me. Turn against you. Oh, they turned <laughs> violently against me. And I was sweating, sweating, just like, what am I going to do? And it was so, really. That is so funny. <laughs> and so really I remember we, we came, I could tell he was like, what's going on you know and i remember as we were walking home to the apartment i was like well you know um he said why were they all with no clothes and i said well you know like a long time ago people didn't have clothes and i don't know what i was doing <laughs> and i start trying to dig myself out of the hole lie. <laughs> oh i'm just i'm just digging a big hole and i'm talking about yeah people didn't and they would just walk around and they didn't have clothes so it's not that you know i mean we clothes are new and i don't know why i was doing this is because i was nervous right and yeah. so i'm sort of trying to make up all of this rubbish and by the time we get home and you know he brushes his teeth and all that and then as i'm kissing him goodnight, he pulls me close to him and he says mommy can you tell me more about the time of the bottoms like <laughs> rear end <laughs> bottoms the time of the bottoms <laughs> Oh and, my goodness. and I was like, this didn't come out the way I was hoping it was going to come out. I've that created. That is very funny. Well, <laughs> you have a house in the south of France and you also live in the United States and you can see yourself just the the difference in Puritanism between the states. Oh, absolutely. The, the, how we deal with, it's with huge. how huge. We're ashamed we are of ourselves. Yeah. And in France, where th whole families think nothing of it, taking off their clothes on the beach That's right. and That's right. not you know, lascivious or crazy or doing anything mad. That's They're right. just simply enjoying their day. Um, well, my friends at drama school when I was in Paris, um, it, when we'd go out in the country, that was the first time I'd ever seen anyone just, you know, a, a woman take down her pants and well, just pee in her, just pee on the side of the road. And, oh, right. and they're like, what's wrong with you? And I'm like, well, someone might come by and they're like, so what? You know, I, I really <laughs> saw how uptight growing yeah. up in Ohio I had we been. Boy, and then, Ohio. Yeah. yeah. And then it certainly changed me. You know, you have to, you go with it. <laughs> Pretty yeah, soon I go. was, 
yeah, and you go mom, with it. When you're a mom, you definitely figure that out. Yeah. But yeah. I, I think we're just a little bit overly obsessed with nudity. Oh, totally. And we just don't get it. Um, well, we get it, but we get it in an unhealthy way where we could be really much healthier about it because um, it's we're just a bit it's a bit all bit weird. We are. are oh, are we're more than a bit weird on it. I think. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So you talked about identity, and I it's something that I've always really been fascinated with in my own life because I've always felt that I through different periods of my life, I always became who I thought people wanted me to be instead of just be who I am. Yeah, and, well, that's a classic mistake. It's, yeah, right. But it's not, it's, it's so easy to make. It's not what, it's, it's only being vulnerable makes you yeah, do that. It's true. So with your particular background and and you've talked about it and been playing these um, characters who are from different Muslim countries and, you know, you, you, you both good and bad characters, right? And yeah. then you're playing British. And have you ever had dreams where you actually feel you're in Sudan? Or have you found a way to manage these identities? Um, I think I'm, I think that, that, I mean, I am a rank outsider, you know, literally an outsider. I'm not white enough to be British and not black enough to be African. And I, and so I'm, I don't belong anywhere. So I'm always fighting to belong, always looking for a hot crack in the wall I can stick my nails in and hold on and um, be part of a group that's bigger. But because there's nothing on me, there's no, you know, label on me that says made in uh, that is authentic in the same way as someone else, your, you know, whatever your experience might be and uh, whatever Avery Brooks's experience might be. And there's a, so it was always very interesting coming to America, say, where there was a large African-American community that clearly I empathized with, but I didn't empathize with their cultural, uh, basic culture. Uh, if, if I could be generalized, if I could generalize for a second, I didn't really empath, I didn't understand really rap music and I didn't understand the, the glorification of sort of this gold and women and 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 some of the things that I saw this I saw in a very sort of caricatured non-satirical way so it wasn't there wasn't irony in it it was just quite literal <laughs> it didn't seem like they weren't being ironic when all the girls were sitting on the back of the car that was bouncing around with the gold chains everywhere there was a genuine uh you know f you because I'm rich and that's that was a kind of weird I didn't like that so I I and then I also had no history of slavery. In fact, I think Sudan was a, this, one of the slave markets. Right, than, right. So very complicated, all these layers, and figuring out where I might sit. Um, if I can just say one thing that you both can. you and Avery have in common is eloquent theatrical speech. It's just beautiful. And Americans are hopelessly in love with either North Atlantic or British accents. When I went to Paris, I I noticed immediately how people of color were treated differently than we treated them in the United States. But also, yeah. everybody spoke with a very mellifluous. They had perfect English. They had been with the the colonization of their countries. You know, it certainly yeah, taught yeah. them English with a British accent. 
Hey, I too was taught at theater school to do a mid-Atlantic accent or even a British accent for Shakespeare. I had different teachers who would say conflicting things. Some people would say, yeah. no, qu quit trying to be British when you do it. You know, right. and others would say, no, be be more be British. Be fully you, American, yes, embrace your, your Yes, and then others would say, no, do Cecily Berry. But you see, some <laughs> of the RSC people, they you learn it and then you always are told to talk like that day and night. You never are allowed to drop it and actually go back and and use your Yorkshire accent. Yeah, the younger yeah. the younger people, I think, don't do that. Like like uh, they, they're changed now. Yeah, yeah it's, it's all very mm -hmm. parochial now. But it, it's it. I mean, you don't you the the thing the the big elephant sitting fatly on the sofa in the room. Um, sorry to body body shame all elephants, but um, <laughs> you they they've uh, it's it's education, you know, mm. and you if. If you're lucky enough, for whatever reason, like Avery, like myself, to either self-educate or be educated or find a way to learn things that are mainstream enough so that you can get in to to get out, <laughs> you can't, you know, rebel against something from the outside. You right. can't throw stones at buildings. You have to get in and open the window. Well, but it is it's very complicated because then there are people who actually speak very simply and uh, they can also change the world by yeah it's not actually down to speech but it no. is down to education education I mean, yeah whether you are self-taught or absolutely in, and it's this yeah. there's a there's a there's a craze nowadays which is societally suicidal and that is there's a swathe of people in in america in the uk and you know other places who actively denigrate education they actively right. look down on it they actively think it's uncool and and they are proud of their uneducated status right but that of course is ultimately self-defeating yeah. <laughs> it's a stupid thing to do no that's that's what des despots do that burn the books stop the education yeah, and, kill yeah. the university professors absolutely that's the first thing we do. stalin did it Mao but on the it. other hand i think we become as someone who's taught at universities for years I feel we have also gone too far in, if you don't get your degree, you won't be a success. Um, when I watch students who are juniors in high school worry about getting into their college, and then I see them when they're in college and they're juniors, and th they're so fraught with anxiety that the yeah. joy of learning has often disappeared because they're yeah. worried about um, their grade, their legacy, and and how they're going to get a job. And I don't remember worrying about that at all. I was mm -hmm. just knowing that I was going to be creating things. And what do you want to say? What do you want to express in the world? How do you want to, yeah. you yeah. know? Um, There's different ways to skin the cat, isn't there? I mean, in, in, in the UK, the university system works in a very different way. I understand the, the US system is a kind of continual assessment. You know, you, 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 could, you, you don't get many semesters off where you don't have to pass something important. Um, whereas in the UK, you get all the year off, you just have to pass the final exam. Mm. And, that's, and that's relatively easy the first year. And you can and you can fail it just so, and you'll still stay. And then you have the same again the next year. So you can do no work. Really? And no work again, yes. Um, which which is classic. I mean, that's yes. it's famous, you know, to, that people would get a 2-2 you know, at the end of, as their degree, instead of a, a, a first, because anyone who got a first was clearly working too hard. But, and so all the creative people only can manage two one or two two. 
Um, but that's because you don't have to work. But that's partly because I think I don't think the system has been changed because what you're learning extracurricularly at that age is so mm. interesting. You know, the Cambridge Footlights would not have happened if they had in, in the States because you, there wouldn't have been time. There you go. Whereas yeah. they had the time and space to do that. They didn't have the pressure of educational um, accomplishment, ac accomplishing anything. So they accomplished the Cambridge Footlights. And they, you know, Oxford had its own version and every, every university has its own thing. So I think maybe they just drive kids too hard. Yeah, you know? I think that the, I think kids are driven too hard. I, oh, by the way, I'm looking forward to uh, Shantaram with uh, you and uh, Charlie. Yeah, um, it, it, it looks I, good. It's, it's, it, it is. I actually think it's I mean, I don't I haven't seen it because I can't really watch myself, but I, it's been canceled. So we can't have, we're not going to get the second year of it. Just like a few days ago. No, I didn't um, know that. But it was terrific to do. Yes, I think, I don't know, it got oh. some pretty terrible reviews. Oh, it did? But the people I know who've seen it were like, I don't know, I thought it was pretty good. So well, I just saw I a, a scene between, between you and Charlie, and I thought that looked really good. And I was like, oh, that's right. going to be fun to watch. Yeah, well, he's Charlie's fantastic, you know, any day, any place. He's As are dead. you, Sid. You were Thank really you. good well, in we, it. We were really well together. And also a woman called Antonia Desplat, who's also fantastic. Oh. Oh, wow. Is she related to the She's composer? She's the daughter of the oh. desperate. Yeah, wow. Exactly. He's such yeah. a genius. Amazing. Um, your character in Game of Thrones, I thought it was such a great character, and I loved what you did. I, I couldn't stand the way they directed that big scene. I thought the two kids should not have been in that scene. It should have just been the three of you in that scene because everyone yeah. was doing a really good performance, but they were so worried about creating this enormous set and having all of the I don't know it's just too yeah. much about external things and the meat of it the intensity of the scene it was there it was yeah. so good yeah. I was very annoyed at that and I've been wanting to tell you that for a long time that well it, thank you I mean it, it's, it's, a, it's a it was it was a it was a total cock up to be honest I mean uh, the I had a two season contract and it, it and they cut it short um and I, we were all wondering what happened. And it's obviously, I, I don't have an ego problem. So I didn't go, wow, I did a, just did a terrible performance. I think it was just that, I think that they thought, they figured out they were going to finish the show. The problem is that David and Daniel, I think they're called David and Daniel, but the two exec producers who micromanage the show um, were on set every day, watching every take, you know, really just a director had to clear with them before he could print a thing. Mm. So it was a real pain in the ass, uh, especially from an actor's point of view, because you know your director's not saying anything that's going to be, I have to go, I might as well go to the source and screw the director. Um, but they didn't really know what they were doing creatively. So, and which when they cut themselves adrift from the writer, which they did in about season four, sort of, sort of did their own thing, the show got steadily worse. And then by the last season, of course, it was just a, you know, clusterfuck. <laughs> and everybody was really upset by the whole thing. So it was, they were fine when they were on tight, you know, on a right. tight leash. But when they were off doing their own thing, they just really couldn't handle it. It's also, I think, really difficult trying to create so many worlds in the same series. And yeah. it gets to the point where you're losing what the essence of the story is if you're always so worried about 
you know, making sure we see that there's a new color scheme here. And there's like, oh, yeah. And there are so many wonderful things within those stories. And there really are. Yeah. And the characters were yeah. phenomenal characters. But there were some wonderful characters. It just wouldn't work for me because of the, the way it was directed. And then there would be, would be scenes that suddenly it would work and you'd go, yeah, why aren't that? That's I know <laughs> I was very confusing. You would like yeah. whisk off to the desert and yeah. back into the snow and then yeah. back to some other place. And yeah. someone's being Machiavellian and someone is manipulating someone. Like, Maybe it's just me because it's like some me people. Too. I have no idea. No idea what's going on. I watched Wakanda Forever the other day. Um, it is fantastic oh i can't wait okay it's absolutely fantastic um and i and there's a tv show on apple called bad sisters fantastic oh good there's so much good stuff out there now it's really great hilarious well siddiq it's been a total pleasure uh (laughs) and i hope that i will because of picard we're going to be doing a lot of conventions next year i don't know if you are I hope people like Are the show. Are you doing stuff on Picard? Yeah, I did 10 episodes. Yeah, it's, so that's fantastic. It that's was wonderful. Fantastic. Congratulations. Thank Such you. Such a great show. That yeah. is so great. That yeah. is really, I'm really chuffed to hear that. Lovely. So thanks. So thanks. we might see each other. We might see each other. If but... I come to Los Angeles, I'd, I'd love to see your cactus Oh. Garden. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I would love that very much. And do send me pictures of your mother's uh, I garden. I will. I'll try and find some. Lots of love. Lots of love back to you too okay. and your boy. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. Very, very welcome. <laughs> Take care. May I just say how wonderful Star Trek actors are as human beings? Take Sid, for example. He does his own podcast sessions for his DS9 fans, and he really goes deep. And we should all write Apple TV and tell them that we loved Sadig and Shantaram and that we want him back. We want more. I certainly do. He was tremendous in the show. More of Alexander Sadig. Well, thanks so much for listening to today's episode. Hope you enjoyed it and that you will come back for next week's Investigates. Who do you think you are? 